I used to lay my head down at night and dream of being an oceanographer. Um, Jacques Cousteau was my study for years. And um, even though the work that I do right now does not line up with my childhood dream, it, having that dream is a constant reminder of my ability to dream. And when I have the ability to dream, I also know that I have the ability to make that dream come true no matter what else. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast. I speak with those who have taken the darkest times of their lives and share their stories to educate, motivate, and inspire others to be their best self. That's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. I'm your host, Jason. I accepted that I'm powerless against alcohol, and in my sobriety, I've confronted my unaddressed childhood and adult trauma, as well as severe anxiety and depression. My guest on this episode of the Knocking Doors Down podcast, Denny Wilson. Denny's the author of Recovery House Rescue, the resurgence of superior care in a non-clinical setting, as well as Fuck Heroin, keys to winning on the addiction battlefield. In addition, Denny has been sober since 1999. Denny also developed and trains a nationally recognized curriculum teaching the steps to successfully own and operate recovery housing and designs programs for others and state agencies to operate from a peer-based model of recovery. And as I got to know Denny, I found him to be a personal inspiration. He's just overcome so much adversity, trauma, and from the depths of despair, built himself a very purposeful life and that's what knocking doors down is all about if this is your first time listening please hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on apple Podcasts, spotify and please subscribe to the youtube channel as well all the links are in the description we couldn't do knocking doors down without 5150 ltm if you want some cool hats, shirts, sweatshirts, maybe some sweatpants, I've got my favorite camouflage 5150 sweatpants on right now. Head on over to the store and check it out by going to 5150ltm.com or click the link in the podcast description. Then at checkout, use the code KDD20. That's KDD20 and get 20% off your entire order. Welcoming to Knocking Doors Down, Denny Wilson. What is going on, good sir? Hey, Jason. It is a magnificent day to be alive. Hey, you in, uh, you're in Akron, Ohio, yeah? Akron, Ohio, the birthplace of Alcoholics Anonymous, where it all began, the recovery mecca. And Dr. Bob, Bill W. Uh, yeah, we could probably just do a whole talk about, about them. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, you're doing so much great work. You got the, the two books or the books that I'm aware of, um, Recovery House Rescue and Fuck Heroin. I know we'll be referring to those, which people can check out at uh, books.dennymwilson.com, right? Right. Yes. Yes. I always want to ask people, why, why, why write? Why share your story? Um, well, number one thinking back, it was those stories that I heard when I first started seeking a lifestyle of recovery that provided that foundation that we all need for recovery, which is hope. You know, someone hadn't told me that they had been down some of the same roads that I've been in using the same drugs, you know, hanging out with the same people, creating the the same kind of havoc, um, and then gotten out of that, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. So, um, writing books for me is taking that storytelling to the next level. 
um, knowing that our stories have power and everybody has a story. Um, just being able to get that, get that story out there on a more broad basis. If that makes sense. No, it does. Absolutely. And it's the weird thing that I've had people and, and tell me if this has happened to you, or maybe you're sitting in a bit of self-doubt about the, the the work that you're doing or something like writing a book. Or for me, it's like this podcast. And, and uh, I recently had a gentleman, um, you may know, uh, Hicks Sheremy, be familiar with the name. Great guy, actor, Louisiana, um, just just a beautiful person uh, and, and advocate for recovery and his story. And he just went, this stuff is going to live on beyond us. So, you know. Just remember that. And and that's something that I've, I guess I've clung to. And yet at the same time, tried not to let ego invade because uh, what happens when we let ego take over, you know? And you know what? It's funny you say that because I just came off a conference. Um, well, I got the honor of attending a conference in Atlanta last month. And I have sat in groups and meetings where that question is posed, what has recovery done for you and I've answered that a hundred different ways you know with all the the common things with the family the job the home and all that stuff but for some reason during this meeting I really got to thinking and one of the greatest things that recovery has done to me right now today because I'm constantly growing like everybody else hopefully but I got to thinking about my cousin who um, I had to witness being uh, sawed in half with a shotgun at an early age. Um, nobody attended his funeral, you know, and then I had an uncle that passed and my family, it was about four or five of us that attended his funeral. And I got to thinking about that as far as my recovery and what has recovery done for me. And it's allowed not only my legacy to go on my story to go on, but to put it in a, in a, in a place where someone may pick up my book a hundred years from now and it may help them, you know? And to me, that was just my, I was completely silent after that. You know, it's like the whole world just um, came crashing down on me. Like, why haven't you thought of this before? Denny, what the heck wrong with you? But <laughs> <laughs> We don't think along those lines. And, and I think that everyone needs to elevate their thinking when it comes down to their story and how powerful it is and what kind of recovery legacy that they're going to leave um, moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've, I've thought about that, too. And uh, 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 a buddy of mine, this gentleman, Mark Gant. And he shared it really well. He was talking about when he was 19 and first started hitting the rooms and he's sitting there talking about how unique he is. And, and an old timer just basically said, you know, you, you're not unique in your disease. Uh, unlike us, the only thing that hasn't happened, you haven't spent serious jail time. You haven't, un, you know, possibly killed someone. You haven't possibly lost homes, jobs or whatever it is. You're just 19. And, and it's that thing about the disease of addiction. No, we're not unique, but some of our circumstances can be, and that can be where people can really connect or go or, or gets outside of themselves. Don't you think? And in reading someone's story and going, wow, this thing can hit anyone in any setting. I don't care if you, you, you came from the outhouse or the lighthouse. And I, I write in my book about the experience that I had getting uh, while I was in 
my last treatment modality in Southern California, Orange County Community Hospital. And they brought in a speaker um, and his name was Glenn and he was an actor and uh, everybody called him Bigfoot. But he talked about um, being unique. And uh, and that was the map, my mentality. You know, that's what my disease told me, that all my problems were mine. Um, every situation, every experience that I've had was was mine and mine alone. And and uh, he pointed out to me something that resonates with me for years. And that is the fact that, um, yes, our disease and everything that we do is unique <laughs> uh, or not unique, but our recovery is. I mean, it's just like our fingerprints um, based on our experiences and everything that we've done up until then. And uh, I think that really helps people grasp a better understanding, or at least it did for me of how I can mold um, and personalize my recovery plan and my, my wellness based on my experience. Yeah. Which is really important. And, and, you know, reading more about you, I, I think the one interesting parallel we have, although different substances was about you six years old when it started coming into your life for me. And I've talked about it openly here was an expo- exposure to hard por- hardcore pornography, which you know, from six to about 40, 41, that's a long time to have something in your life. I, it was just the last thing I was willing to recognize once I got the booze and the other stuff out of the way. But, oh, shit, there's this underlying issue going on here. Oh, and, and I think it really has to do deal with the level of consequences, too, because there's so many things. Everybody's addicted to something. And um, when society or who we're, we hang around most starts labeling something um, as negative or we start experiencing consequences behind what we're addicted to, whether we even realize we're addicted, that's when we start noticing a, probably a need for change. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. For you, I mean, you, you ran for a long time. I mean, you were, what, uh, you were about six years old, right, when, when substances really came into your life? I grew up in the 70s and in a blended family and um, mom and dad did their thing. Uh, record parties were real huge back then where everybody got together and listened to the latest George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Red Fox albums, um, drinking, smoking, just laughing it up, having a good time. And I used to creep down the steps and uh, be really warm, warmly welcomed by the house guests, my aunts and uncles and it got to a point to where someone, one of them or somebody asked me to take the joint from one side of the room to the person sitting on the other side of the room. And that became a frequent, learned how to mix drinks. But during that pathway one time, I decided I was going to take a hit 
just to see what the hype was all about. You know, I wanted to be with um, like what everybody else was doing. I wanted to be, you know, a little bit more of the life of the party. And then the same thing with alcohol. Um, I used to watch uh, these folks um, mix drinks. And uh, pretty soon I was learning how to mix drink, mix drink and uh, open uh, beer bottles and um, became that waiter. And, you know, it's a long trip from one side of the room to the other side of the room when you've got something that um, people are role modeling as being um, a part of life as you're seeing it. And that that did happen at six years old. Yeah. I mean, it's such a pivotal, pivotal time in our, our age and our growth and, and to have that so entrenched in your psyche of this isn't the norm. This is how it goes, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's funny you even bring up people like Richard Pryor, George Carlin, Red, Fro- Red Fox, because comedy was big in my house and the records were easily accessible. And I'm, I'm a huge Carlin fan, Pryor fan. And, you know, be, be the kid that, you know, your buddies come over, you put on Andrew Dice Clay, whatever it is. And so I even think about me as a kid that that looking back and I've asked some of my elementary friends this. Uh, hey, did I kind of have a foul mouth like, oh, yeah, you were telling us jokes that we shouldn't have known at that age. But, you know, so people would get around you. So it's it's the same thing with the language we use it. You know, I heard my daughter at the first time she was about 11 and shit slipped out of her mouth and I came unglued, you know, because. I, if dad curses, it means that there's a real reason behind it. You know, it's not something in my everyday vernacular around my kids. So it's, again, interesting how these model things, you know. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and again, going back to when you realize that this isn't quite the norm or how normal people really interact. Uh, those were my mentors. They, those were my speech therapists. They taught me how to interact socially. And when I got to a point to where I said, you know what, I've got to cut some of this stuff out. I'm growing in my recovery. I'm, you know, sitting down at the table across and I never cussed in front of my mom and dad, you know, or my kids. Um, so when I got to the point where I was titling my book, that was a conversation between me and my higher power that um, was sort of like, are you sure? <laughs> you know, <laughs> And by this time, you know, I hadn't had a relationship with my father for 30, until I was 30. Um, he had become uh, an elder of the church. Um, I was an elder of the church. You know, mom was te- or my wife was teaching Sunday school. Kids raised up. You know, these are some of the things that you just don't talk about. And when I had a book uh, revealing party and I showed them what, you know, I was entitling the uh, my first book, my bestseller. Um, it was just silence and shock and awe. And uh, <laughs> I, I remember my my youngest son going, "Daddy." <laughs> uh, so you that's interesting because you're talking about your folks. So did your parents get cleaned up? My my. Mother and father, my father left when I was eight years old. So a couple of years after um, my first hit and drug, uh, he kind of, he went away. Um, Mom diagnosed with a mental illness. Um, They were separated. Um, And I actually didn't have his last name till I was 10 years old. Um, And that was part of uh, him requesting a divorce and my mom stipulating, you know, there's no way I'm going to get this or let this happen unless, 
you know, you take responsibility for your son by way of his last name. And um, so they, they went their separate ways uh, early on, um, lived with my mom, her, uh, her mental illness uh, for quite some time up until uh, my 18th birthday. It was the last to move out of the house. It was myself, um, my older brother, my older sister, and my younger sister uh, moved into the projects of Akron. And she was able to manage her mental illness um, quite well for a very long time. I mean, there were, there were um, times where uh, she uh, allowed the symptoms or became very symptomatic, had to be hospitalized over the years and stuff, being a witness to all that. But um, my father, he went in a totally different direction, um, stopped selling drugs, stopped um, objectifying women, which... Uh, that was what he was most well known for and how he made a living at times or part-time living. But I did not have a relationship with him until again, like I said, I was, I was 30. And uh, by this time he had really proven himself that he wasn't that guy. Um, number one, that my mom created um, by describing him, which he backed up by some of his actions um, he was a totally different person, uh, highly involved in church, um, serving, uh, doing community service, um, working with young males uh, in the jail and prison ministry. And uh, yeah, it was it was really interesting how we got back together too, how we started formalizing that relationship. Yeah. Well, now I got to know, how did that form, how did that formulate that? He took a genuine interest and the work that I was doing with um, people with substance use disorders out here, at, uh, uh, opening up recovery homes um, and expanding on recovery community centers around Summit County. And that interest was not so much because I was his son. What, and, and I didn't find this out, Jason, until um, my first book launch in 2019. Um, he actually got on the microphone and he said that and by this time, um, we've got a great relationship. And he got on the microphone in front of like 200 people and said, you know, I thought it was my fault that my son had the disease of addiction because I used to blow marijuana smoke in his face when he was three. And you could just see the relief come off of him. And that's when he told me that he was there, not so much because I was his son and he was backing everything that we were doing with the ministry and the nonprofit and the workout in the, the, the jail and prison ministries. It was because he thought that at some point he had created something that somebody was fighting against and in me, but it wasn't because of me, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. I think my dad felt the same way. Uh, you know, we had to go through the a good reconciliation. You know, it wasn't uh, even though dad was was there, he wasn't there per se. You know, he was in his disease and we didn't really start developing something till probably about 23, 24 years old. Yeah. Let alone then to really open up until I was like, oh, I've got a problem. I've got to confront this. And then at that point, then he was, you know, because he never pushed me. I don't know about you. I never had people that were, you know, they'd let, they, they'd let me know they were concerned, but there was no people pushing me. But once I went, okay, 
I need help. And then, then it was, okay, you're asking for help. Here's what you're going to do. Let's get to the solutions. Most of the folks that were in my life when I was at the height of or for the years that I was sick, um, they were just like, glad it's not me, you know? <laughs> they were, I mean, not surprised at any of the stuff I was doing out there. I'd reached all those yets, you know, as far as stealing from your family members, you know, taking the microwave down, your mom's microwave down the street to the dope boy, you know, all of that stuff. It, it, they, they weren't surprised at any of that. They were just glad it wasn't them. uh yeah i can say that's that i never was was at that level i probably you know i snake booze and stuff like that or maybe didn't ask hey can i have another but it never got to the point of theft thank goodness oh man um anyway so when did you really start to recognize, let's get into the solution for Denny, that you just accepted, this is not the way I want to go anymore. This is not the way people really live. You were alive, but you weren't living. I wasn't smart enough to throw dirt over top of me. That's all it was. I was, I was dead. But the crossroad um, that I came to um, happened on, actually, if it actually started in May of 1995. I mean, after multiple arrests, all of those things that we experienced, um, seeing the inside of a an adult uh, correctional facility uh, as a as a minor, um, having the child, you know, as a teenager, um, the four or five treatment modalities up until then. But the crossroad that I came to happened. May 14th, 1995. And that was um, after I was wholeheartedly trying to sit up in group and pay attention in treatment outpatient at the time, managed to get a job, um, was staying back in my mother's apartment in the projects. Um, uh, she lived there alone. She had room. She was the only person that I hadn't burnt all my bridges with. And I got off work that Friday morning, uh, May 14th was a Sunday, got off work that Friday morning, uh, went to a neighborhood bar that would cash checks and start serving liquor um, as early as they can, had a couple drinks. That party lasted until that Sunday morning, the 14th, where I found myself banging on her door, um, getting louder and louder knowing that she didn't want to draw attention to herself because I wasn't supposed to be there. And I had given her some money to put up for me because I was really trying to make an effort um, to get clean and sober and leave the lifestyle alone. Well, after, you know, charming my way, she managed to crack the door open and uh, we had already had an agreement that no matter what, she was not going to give me the money. Um, made that commitment or decision, you know, in the sober state of mind, she cracked the door. I knocked her to the floor, um, demanded my money. When she refused, I pulled uh, this gun that I was used to getting my way with out in the streets. And I pointed at my mother's head and uh, somehow <laughs> demanding that she tell me where my money was. Cause I just kept wanting to get high. And um, somehow she managed to convince me that laying it down was the best thing. And I, I agreed after I had ransacked her apartment looking for a hiding space and um, laid it down, got up later on that night to go to work because I worked third shift and uh, 
for that whole week, Jason, you know, just avoided my mom. Um, we didn't speak two words to each other throughout the week. I was so ashamed of what I had done. Um, how do you pull a gun out on your own mother uh, on mother's day? And I avoided her for the week. She continued to be mom. She would leave me little notes. Um, Pooh, I love you. That, that was my nickname. It's okay. If everybody knows it, but, um, uh, I love you. We can get through this, you know, leaving me plates in the microwave in the oven, just being mom, you know? So that Friday morning got my paycheck, um, riddled with guilt, remorse, you know, shame. What do you think I did? I went straight back to that same neighborhood bar and I was looking for the only thing that was going to ease this pain that I had caused my own mother throughout the week. Had a few drinks, um, went looking for, uh, the, the, the ultimate, um, forget that all that happened, drugs and the lifestyle and the women and everything. And found myself back at her door that Sunday morning, banging, you know, insisting that she open the door, trying to explain to her that I'm sick, um, that I need help, all this other stuff, the, the tears, the voice, telling her that the neighbors are watching, trying to threaten her, you know, her housing situation itself. And uh, she once again fell for it and she opened the door. At this time, I had already convinced myself that I was not going to allow her to be a barrier to me getting high. So when I pushed her down this time, um, I didn't even see her as my own mother. And I took that same gun that uh, again, that I was used to getting everything that I wanted out in the streets with. And I pointed at her at her head. And when she denied, when she denied me this time, um, something snapped. And to this day, I still don't know what echoes more in my head. Um, the sound of that cold, hard piece of steel as it met with her left side of her head, just above her eye or the sound the gun made as I squeezed the trigger when the two met. So while she's laying there on the floor, screaming at this time, you know, stop, stop, stop. She, she started praying the whole time. She's still in the same spot that I'd left her at. I'm tearing up. I'm smashing things. I'm ransacking her whole house again, looking for my money. And uh, then I remember she began to pray. And most people that I had put in that situation, they began to pray for themselves. And it was so odd that she wasn't praying for her. She was praying for me. And somehow... When I started coming down, I found myself on the corner of the bed that she had so graciously given me um, with that still warm gun barrel still in my mouth. I realized what I had just done. And the only way to stop that pain was for me to end my life. So I squeezed the trigger. And um, I'm still here. <laughs> And uh, at that time, uh, and I don't know where anybody stands 
spiritually or religiously or anything, but God in all of his infinite wisdom and, and grace and mercy decided to send an angel into that room at the very moment that the hammer was dropping. It was my older sister who was Caucasian from a previous marriage that my mom was in. And uh, we hadn't spoken in years, even in the time that we did speak, you know, it wasn't um, anything more than, Hey, how you doing? You know, that type of stuff. But the same sister that I had heard um, telling racial jokes, you know, with her friends um, whom I was a burden on because she had to drag me to school and kind of look after me. But um, she grabbed the gun and she said, Pooh, don't, um, we can get you help. From there, um, I got, I remember talking to a young man on the phone whom I believe was the world's very finest peer supporter um, or recovery coach because he talked to me on a level that I could understand. First question, so what? You, you've been hitting the pipe, huh? And I'm like, man, I've never heard anybody ask that question outside, you know, but um, three hours later, I was on a plane to Orange County, California there. I went through a 21-day intensive inpatient program. And uh, from there, I was able to leave a lot of the stuff that I'd went through. And, and um, I was offered a two-week stay in a sober living environment. That's what they called him at the time. And there I met a man whom for the first time in my life, the very first time in my life, genuinely cared about my future. He did not give a, 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 a damn about what I had done in the past, even up until, you know, what I'd done with my own mother. Um, but all he cared about was my future. 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road. That road you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. So listen up. There's a special deal for listeners of Knocking Doors Down. Go to 5150LTM.com and enter code KDD20 and receive 20% off your purchase. That's 51FIFTYLTM.com. Long story short, I, he took me under his wing, taught me everything that he knew about life, love, relationships, recovery, um, addiction, and serving other people. And as an honor to him and this new life that I've been granted, um, I picked it up and I've ran with it ever since in that order, life, love, recovery, relationships. So I don't know if that answers your question. There's, there's so many in-betweens. In <laughs> but no, that was the crossroad. That was a deciding moment for Danny Michael Wilson. Yeah. Well, I, no, I, I wanted the more cliff note version so it works because you wrote a book on it that uh, details it more. But I really thank you for the, the vulnerability there. Um, sorry, choked me up a bit. I could I, – I, I felt like I was in the room with you when you were talking about it and knowing that that level of insanity because it is. And that's why we talk in the big book and in newcomers, if it's new people listening, what's this restored to sanity piece all about? What's this about? And I think what, what you led to sharing is exactly what it's about. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, 
glorious part about that isn't so much, you know, the survival of that situation. It's just the opportunity to have met, you know, just one person. You know, we're talking about a history of doctors and counselors and, you know, all these things that make up our uh, continuum of care or recovery-oriented systems of care. And at the end of the day, I've discovered the the secret to long-term recovery. And that is just finding one person that genuinely believes in you, you know, and moving on and building from there. Yeah. No, it's funny you you, you mentioned that I had a gentleman that uh, came up to me a few nights ago. I was uh, I, I do some ring announcing for MMA events and stuff, and this was at it. And it was a gentleman that was a former student. I had about a, a five year foyer into into teaching, and and he came up and told me exactly what you said. And boy, I you know here I am in this nice suit, Denny, and I'm I'm crying, meeting his wife for the first time, and he's like, "You were the one cat that believed in me." You know, and it's like, you know, gives me a chills to think about. But yes, we do. We need that one, at least that one person that believes in us and, and just is there and just to tell us, I believe in you is powerful. Yeah. I mean, and that's the challenge that I put out to everybody. I mean, that's the basis for, you know, all of the information in my books, you know, every time I speak, you know, and that and chances are that person is already in your life. And if they're not, they're definitely on their way as long as you've crossed over from um, uh, just going with the flow to a point of willingness. You know, we attract everything that we need in life. I promise you that. I'm, I'm a witness. My recovery date is May 21st, 1995. It was the day after that incident with my mother when I ended up on that plane. That is when I that line was drawn in the sand. That is when I stopped making decision, 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 decision to stop drinking, drug and doing all this other stuff. But I actually made my first commitment. And that commitment, unbeknownst to me at the time, wasn't to quit drinking and drugging, but was to become the best me that I could be. And that's the message that I put out there today. You know, my my whole life's purpose is, <coughs> excuse me, my whole life's purpose is to fast track people to health and wellness and to help them or, or introduce them to um, the kind of lifestyle that they want um, and the endless possibilities that are associated with them, you know, and along the way, help them or show them, teach them how to add value to the people around them and eventually the whole world. So when we talk about this thing called recovery, yes, it is selfish at times, it is personal, but it's been my experience that everything that I've ever been through in life has always been for that higher purpose of meeting that one person that I can look in the eyes, that I can hug, that I can embrace and say, hey, you know what? I believe in you no matter what you've done up to this point. After you encounter some of those folks, what are, you know, said, you said fast track and, and um uh, I know some people might misinterpret that a little bit, but what are some of those processes you take with them initially to get them on that? And I, th I, when I hear fast track, I hear 
starting with the rigorous honesty, really being able to help them start their self-examination and get rolling with this. You know, I'm a 12 step guy, be it the steps or whatever it is towards towards the building of a life that it's possibility, um, it, which is endless. So what are some of those steps that, that let's say me first day came in, Denny, I'm here asking for help. Some of that listening um, that we really need to do when we see another human being be across from us where we can really gauge and find stage appropriate assistance for that person. Where are they at in their recovery? Are they um, pre-contemplative? Are they, are they thinking that, you know, um, maybe that stuff will work for other people, but not for me? Are they, are they contemplative? Are they saying that, Hey, you know what, maybe there is, you know, some, some help for me and this person might have it. So we kind of got to really gauge and fill people out and be there for them, um, along the, the stages of change that they go through. And if you encounter somebody like myself, who was at the end of their rope or who was totally committed at the time, life is kind of easy, but our purpose, number one, is to not so much expose people to what's worked for us, but to expose people to the multiple pathways of recovery, the, the, whether it be the steps, um, certain fellowships, um, certain groups, um, and even, you know, everything from faith-based all the way down to nature-based and let them handpick and choose what will help them depending upon where they are in their, in their recovery. And when I say in their recovery, are they totally abstinent? Are they, you know, is that one of the primary goals? Um, are they, you know, is there's, there's some harm reduction going on to where they're not putting a needle or straw in their, in their body, but they're, you know, experimenting with, um, with, with marijuana or CBD, you know, whatever the case may be. When, when you hear that phrase, meet them where they're at, it, it, it's so broad of a stroke and it doesn't necessarily have to deal with attitude. It has to deal with their mental capacity, their physical capacity, their spiritual and emotional abilities or, or capacity at the time. And again, it's really hard to say that this is ABC uh, D uh, key, but the very first thing that everyone needs to do when they do encounter people who want to make change in their life is to just simply be there with them during that change. And that doesn't always necessarily mean giving advice, suggestions, or even offering what may have worked for you or what you know has worked for countless other people. Most of the folks that I experience these days, Jason, um, they're in a hole and they've created such a um, sense of darkness around them that alone is all they wanted for a long, a long time. Alone is what they've gotten. And alone is the last thing that they want. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it's um, interesting because the way you've, you've finished that with the way you started, it was that per perception and, and tell me with the folks that are new to it, you know, they think the opposite of addiction is sobriety, but you're talking about connectivity. And that is the opposite of addiction. Superpower, brother. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Uh, well, Denny, we usually uh, we're going to wrap up here in a few with some uh, random questions. I leave you with the final thoughts. Anything else you want to interject and share here that maybe through our discussion that 
that we haven't touched on that's something that's really been um, part of your growth recently? You know, number one, it was instilled in me at an early um, age in my recovery that um, lifelong learning should become a priority. Um, I'm sitting in my home office. I'm surrounded around books. This is where the creativity flows. This is where um, I get to tap into other people's perceptions, perspectives, opinions, um, all by choice so that I can help navigate this thing called life. Um, if I had one wish for anybody that might be listening or watching this, it would be that you really understand that recovery is so much about discovery, um, discovery of who you are, what you like, how to be honest with yourself about those things and the world around you and how you can shape that, that you can spend a lifetime best guessing. But when you offer yourself the freedom of going into someone else's mind through their literature, through their videos, through their podcast, you know, you expand the possibilities and the creativity in your life to create the kind of life that you were saved for, that purpose that we all seek after. I, I talked about my purpose, you know, and how it is to add value to uh, others and to help them become the best that they are. The only way that I was ever, ever able to come to that realization was because other people helped me, you know, and that was through books and literature and listening um, and sitting up and paying attention and not always being the, uh, the loudest voice. In yeah. It's good to, uh, to find those, uh, you know, key term, it was given to me was uh you know indirect mentors the people you can just you know sit and and watch and how they are and maybe take some of the you know the model of what they framed and and start to incorporate it in, into life because at the end of the day i think that for me what i found is that this is about a mastery of self you know i know my bull by now denny i know i know my bull I know when my disease comes out, I know the behavior, the language, uh, the, the, the attitude, all of it. And, and it's about, you know, hey, that's up there, but I'll keep that stuff in check. I'm going to keep that stuff in check and do the work and be honest about it when that voice gets that, that terrible voice that's not in my own voice gets really loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and by all means, don't be afraid to use that creativity. The crazier it sounds to you, but, you know, it. it you know it would work. That is what we got to go after. I mean, for God's sake, I drive an ambulance. My wife finally gave me permission to, to go out and buy a, a tour vehicle and a Harley, saved up the money, and what do I come home with? I drive a, a, an ambulance. <laughs> and I can pass out more narc. I mean, what is wrong? <laughs> uh, hey, Narcan is saving lives, so that's a good thing. Amen. Uh, let me ask you about that, though. Does when I first kind of learned about Narcan, I, I was kind of on the fence. And I just want to share this perspective and see what, what your standpoint was. Because I was sitting and thinking, okay, yes, we, we're, we're, you know, stopping those dopamine receptors. And we are saving some lives to people, especially now with, with fentanyl on the streets. And I know there are some versions that are coming out that uh, Narcan doesn't work with, which is even scarier. But um, I was like, 
Well, what about the person? Okay, we've Narcan them, but what are we going to do afterwards? Because there's a lot of people that, yes, they've been Narcan. Maybe they get to a hospital. Hopefully, they get to a hospital. Um, but they're going to go into those withdrawal symptoms pretty quick. Yeah. Um, well, if, if I understand the question correctly, I mean, what do we do with those folks? And I've experienced them and you know, it, it's it, an overdose is ugly, number one. But when they wake up and they realize that you just uh, they spent the last four or five hours hustling up the money to get high and you just completely, totally blew it for them. Um, they're pretty upset. Yeah. But I look at that as an opportunity to at least plant the seeds, because think about it, Jason. When you first heard about drugs and alcohol recovery or that it's possible, you know, um, the lifestyle in itself and all the benefits that recovery could do, you know, it was somebody planted a seed, you know, inside of you um, that said, hey, you can get clean and sober. You can live the kind of lifestyle you want to, your wildest dreams come true, all this other stuff. I think that when we pull somebody out of an overdose, number one, they don't know that they were dying or, you know, we're close to um, being dead already, but that's a, an opportunity because I remember um, someone coming up to me about five years ago that said, Hey dude, do you remember Narcan and me? I'm like, no, it was, he said it was in Philadelphia and Kensington. And um, he said, I remember you because of your mohawk, number one. But you said something to me that I, 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 I remember. And I was mad. I was pissed. I, all of this stuff. He said, um, there's help for you when you're ready. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand that. He said, I didn't understand that at the time. But um, I can tell you this much. I wasn't ready. But that always played in my mind every time I picked up again before I used, you know, it kind of drifted away after I put a couple in me, but you know, um, there's help available when you're ready. And that simple phrase that you told me in the, in the the middle of what I had no idea what was going on, scared to death. I remember that. And I reached out for that help because you told me that it was, it was available when I was ready. So I look at bringing people back using Narcan as an opportunity to plant seed. If you can partner with or develop in your communities um, a program where, you know, you can offer things because we're talking about immediate detox, immediate withdrawal. Okay. Nobody wants to hear what you got to say. And, you know, coming to my door three days later with the police or as an advocate saying, hey, we got these resources, that's, that doesn't work either. Let's catch these folks once they have um, made a decision, but not a commitment. Mm-hmm. Like this gentleman I'm talking about, he hadn't, he'd made a decision, you know, but he hadn't made a commitment. But when he was ready to make that uh, commitment, there was an opportunity there. You know, have a handout card, you know, when you're ready here, if you want help here, you know, if you need me here. You know, and and give them something tangible to hold on to. Um, so I, I can talk about this for hours, but I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> well, no, that's the good stuff. That's the, the helping because I want, you know, I mean, we're seeing it and, and hopefully 
communities and people are getting hip to it, you know, because I don't know about you here in California. They're finally starting to take the first steps of recognizing this fentanyl crisis, let alone the drug crisis. Now the number one killer of our youth. I mean, what is the, the, the demo? I forget now, 16 to 30, 34 or something. The number one killer in the United States is, is a drug overdose, if I remember correctly. I think that's the range. Yeah. Um, but if we can continue to help educate people and let them know, and then those suffering, the help is here when you're ready. So I wholeheartedly agree with you. So I was, I appreciate that perspective. I was, I was uh, curious how, as someone that's far more active in it than I, you know, you encounter and you deal with it. Yeah. And, um, you know, along the lines of the demographic, stuff, you know, one of the things that more than anything is knowing that, um, people are being robbed of their bottoms. You know, they're not even given an opportunity to get, you know, to a point to where they can make a decision or a commitment um, to move towards recovery. And uh, when you say education, that is that is the key. And then just being an example. And, you know, for lack of a better word, shame on me, because um, I know I could of my social media presence. I know I can do a little bit more, but these streets you know, where I grew up, where I encountered these folks. Um, I, I, I like that, that one-on-one interaction. I want to look uh, a man in his eyes who, who is saying that, you know, I want to do better. You know, I want to be there with Narcan in hand. I want to love on, I want to hug on, I want to pass out some harm reduction stuff. So, you know, um, just in case. You know, versus the uh, and that's not an indictment towards anybody that is doing it, because I know some spectacular people that are helping me stay clean and sober today and keeping me in the right mind frame um, through social media and and even podcasts and things of that nature. Um, I'm babbling again. <laughs> no, you're not. I, 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 I swear, I just walked into a homeless camp while we were talking, and I'm, I'm loving on, you know, George and, and Tommy, you know, who, who, you know, gave up their kids or left their their house, you know, to go go get high. And but anyway, <laughs> yeah, no, I I could see that you uh, talking about it. You went to a very personal place from personal experience. Yeah. All right, Denny. Well, this is the time we have a little bit of fun. All right. We ready to have some fun. All right. Not that this hasn't been fun, uh, you know, because I love this education. I love uh, talking about this. So, but uh, here we go. Random questions. Um, oh, this is always a fun one. So your book, it's a, it's, I mean, boy, you lay it out there. If it were to be turned into a Hollywood movie, just a movie in general, it doesn't have to be done in Hollywood. Uh, who would you want to play adult you? Oh, great question. Um, adult me would definitely have to be um, Denzel. Denzel. Absolutely. I get that a lot. I get that a lot. I'm going to tell you what, Denny. I don't get, they can have Denzel play me because that, that <laughs> gentleman can act and he's one of the most brilliant performers. Uh, the, the, the thing of why I chose Denzel is because he has what, he has a sense of peace and serenity about him. And that's all I was looking for in recovery. Just some peace and serenity. It was one of the promises that I learned in the rooms. 
And uh, he continues to maintain that. So definitely Denzel on top of the acting, acting accolades. So. <laughs> well, and I, you know, I don't know that he would ever openly talk about, but I have seen some things where he makes references to having some struggles with alcohol at one time too. So I think he would come with real personal insight. Yes, Denzel has personal insight. I'm sure of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, uh, this is another fun one. It kind of helps you understand people. Uh, whatever reason you're stranded on a deserted island, you have one movie with you and one greatest hits album from a musical artist or band. What are they? Well, the band is easy. It's got to be Pink Floyd. Um, um, whatever they, I don't even know if they have a greatest hits, but whatever they would put together and say, this is Pink Floyd's greatest hits. That's it. Um, the movie would definitely have to be, um, hmm, the abyss. The abyss. That is a brilliant trip. That yeah. God, I haven't watched that in a long time. I loved that movie. Man, the whole concept of the not being alone, the the helping attitude, the you know you can destroy, be destroyed at any moment, but you know the human nature that comes out of it, absolutely. Yeah, it does have a lot of perseverance of love and different stuff in there. James Cameron has a beautiful way of speaking, throwing in some messages that he wants to get across. Love it, love it. Uh, all right, let's see. What's another fun one? Oh, uh, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Ooh. I think the superpower that I would want more than anything would be to fly. And that is because I, I would have the ability to get more places um, a lot faster and you know, I wouldn't pass myself on the freeway like I've done some other times, you know, going from one place to another. So, yeah, <laughs> the power of flight. Uh, well, and you do a lot of speaking around the country, too, so we can avoid TSA lines. <laughs> uh, Mr. Wilson, this has been absolutely awesome and a pleasure to speak with you. Um, I like to leave the guests with the final words. Uh, anything just... Uh, maybe from your experience or that, that you would want people to know, um, be it them struggling in any capacity or a loved one? Yeah. Again, I want to refer back to the awesomeness and greatness that we all have inside of us and the pursuit of running into or recognizing that one person that's on their way or already in your life that can help pull out and, 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 and shine up that greatness that is inside of you already. And with that, the world becomes again, endless possibilities, turn your dreamer back on. You know, I used to lay my head down at night and dream of being an oceanographer. Um, Jacques Cousteau was my study for years. And, um, even though the work that I do right now does not line up with my childhood dream, it, having that dream is a constant reminder of my ability to dream. And when I have the ability to dream, I also know that I have the ability to make that dream come true no matter what. 
This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast, featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma, to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. Strengthening communities, providing resources, building awareness, empowering youth in need to overcome adversity and achieve success. This is what the Carlos Vieira Foundation is all about. Through our campaigns, the race for autism, race to end the stigma, and race to be drug free, we're able to help so many in need. Our goal is to provide support to families and children and give these families opportunities that might not normally arise. Learn more and find out how you can get involved. Visit Carlos Foundation.org today. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the Knocking Doors Down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.